and welcome to Dungeons and Drama Nerds. My name is Todd, and today I'm here with Percy. Hello. And Nick. Hello. And our special guest, Mac Rogers. Hello, thank you for having me. Today we wanted to discuss the lines between theater and audio drama, and who better to discuss that with than writer of the plays uh, The Honeycomb Trilogy, Universal Robots, as well as the audio drama Steal the Stars, The Message, Give Me Away, and many more. Um, so to start it off with, Mac, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your trajectory as a writer? Definitely, yeah. Uh, well, uh, so I come from theater. When I uh, when I got out of college, uh, I moved to New York. Soon after I moved to New York, I started a theater company with two close friends of mine from college, um, uh, Sean Williams and Jordana Williams. She was Jordana Davis at the time, but between college and when they got to New York, they actually became a couple and got married. Uh, and um, they uh, when they were when they moved to New York, we decided to start a theater company together because, you know, that they, they had worked with me on plays that I wrote back in college, back at UNC Chapel Hill. Um, and we basically uh, sort of did all the stuff that like dumbasses do with uh, <laughs> you know, when you get together with some college friends and make a theater company uh, where you, you put on some plays and you're shocked that nobody comes to see them. Um, the first play we did. It was it was a it was a a, a, a a play that I wrote called Dirty Juanita that was like um, that was about sort of like a, a sort of a strange uh, uh, deteriorating relationship between two straight male roommates who'd moved to New York from college, <laughs> as you can roll all of mirrors here, and it was um, <laughs> it, it was it was unbelievably long. Um, it was packed with direct direct address monologues. Sean and I both acted in it, uh, and, um, and there was another character as well. And, um, and we, we, we put all of our money together. We rented four weeks. We rented four weeks at a, at a theater <laughs> that we found because we thought, well, we need to have a long enough run, you know, to, for word to get to around, build press. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, so the, you know, the times and the post and, uh, you know, the New York press that still existed, you know, all, all those people would come to, to see the show. So what that actually meant was like about we we had about 50 friends in New York between college and some other stuff. And those 50 friends kind of scattered over the first couple of performances. And then we played to just basically nearly empty houses for the remainder four weeks. Like um, mm -hmm. there'd be like a couple people in the audience. Um, and it was I always tell people there's just no playwriting school on earth that will educate you like performing your own play with direct address monologues directly into the eyes of the two people <laughs> who are the only people who showed up to your show and you're boring them to death with your incredibly overlong autobiographical play mm -hmm. about your life that nobody else cares about. Um, and uh, it, it was a harrowing, humiliating experience. And I had a lot of time after we closed to sit and think about what I learned. A big revelation that occurred to me as I started to get back into, you know, producing shorter plays uh, as part of like short play festivals, getting involved in like different, you know, organizations mm -hmm. is sort of like a way of getting, you know, me and my colleagues getting back on our feet. The, probably the most uh, one of the key revelations of my writing life was that I would not have gone to see the play that I wrote. I thought it was incredibly important for other people to come and see it because it was a three hour play about my emotions. But it occurred to me, I never go to anybody else's three hour play about their emotions. Uh, 
So why did I think anyone would come to mind? And I started thinking, well, what do, what, what do I go to see? Uh, you know, I go to see um, science fiction and I go to see horror and I go to see thrillers um, and, th you know, things along those lines. And so I started to think, you know, because I still wanted to make theater. I started to think, can those genres, which are typically associated with film and television, uh, uh, could those genres work on stage, um, uh, given what you might call the limitations of the stage, but which are also, from another vantage point, the opportunities of the stage. Mm -hmm. And um, once I started really applying myself to figuring out how to tell the kinds of uh, genre stories that I loved... Um, via theatrical styles, I started enjoying playwriting much more. Um, the, the play still stayed personal. You, that's the thing. You, I would tell younger people, you don't have to worry about making the thing you're writing personal. That'll just be there because you're the person writing it. F think of something that you would enjoy writing and your life will leak into it no matter what. And uh, so I started writing, um, you know, science fiction, horror, thrillers, um, I, I I started enjoying the writing so much more. My colleagues, as a result, enjoyed producing the material so much more. And audiences, as a natural outgrowth of that, started enjoyed watching it so much more. And we started to, um, you know, over the next uh, uh, 10 years, we, we, we started building an audience. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, more and more uh, leading up to... Um, the Honeycomb Trilogy, which you mentioned earlier, which was really sort of the zenith uh, accomplishment among me and my colleagues in theater, which was this trilogy of plays about an extraterrestrial occupation of the Earth, all three place. There were reasons why all three plays were in the same living room set. You know, for, uh, the living room just changed what it meant over the course of the two generations that the storytelling spanned. Um, and we mounted those plays sequentially in 2012, uh, uh, January, March and June. Um, and they got uh, mostly great reviews. Uh, a lot of people really enjoyed them. And uh, uh, it sort of emboldened us to remount them in 2015, uh, where we actually went to the gym at Judson. Uh, the, the Judson Church is sort of one of the storied locations of indie theater, uh, because that was a big enough space to where we could mount the plays in repertory, where we could store the pieces of the set that we weren't using for the other two plays. Uh, and, and we could do epic Saturday and Sunday uh, uh, three-play runs, where people would have the option of watching the entire trilogy in a single day. And all three of those plays got uh, New York Times critics picks. We got um, that was really that 2015 was really the zenith of our of our theater accomplishment. Uh, it, Sean and I joked that like doing the Honeycomb Trilogy plays uh, in 2015 in repertory was sort of like our big touchdown senior year of high school. Uh, like we were the for, for, we were the star quarterbacks or the star. I don't need I don't know what the football positions are, but we did the amazing touchdown. Uh, we were absolute heroes in our high school for the remaining couple weeks of the school year. And then summer came and nobody cared anymore. And we're just sort of like, but do, do y'all remember when you loved us? Do you remember when you were, were cheering for us and, uh, uh, mm -hmm. you know, where you were at the bar telling the bartender about that touchdown we had? Because it was really just like um, audiences loved it. We, we great crowds. And it was and it was just a wonderful, magical experience. Uh, and 
we did one more, we did a remount of I Play Universal Robots the next year, but it was quickly becoming clear that as an independent theater company where we had to load in our own sets and we had to do equity showcase contracts, meaning that everyone was getting, you know, less than minimum wage to be in the shows, it became clear that we were just getting too old. It was just, it wasn't a sustainable lifestyle for us. By I don't know what would have happened, but by pure chance, our college friend and, and my colleague, Dan Coyce, um, who uh, worked uh, works at Slate. Uh, Slate had at that time an affiliated um, podcast company called Panoply. Uh, Panoply's closed down now, but at the time uh, they were basically producing Slate's podcasts. They were looking for collaborations to like bring revenue in and they got somehow got connected with GE General Electric GE was like we want to we want to make a fiction podcast fiction this was 2015 so there were far fewer of them at this time but not none and they said we're you know we're looking for someone to basically write serial with aliens they wanted a fiction podcast that sounded like a investigative documentary uh, about an extraterrestrial transmission that that was being decoded by that came to Earth at the end of World War II uh, and was now being decoded in the present day. My friend Dan Coyce, who worked there, said, oh, my my friend Mac just wrote this serialized science fiction play. He knows how to write serialized stuff with cliffhangers, mainly because I grew up on Doctor Who. And uh, and so I was able to go in, uh, you know, an interview uh, for the job. And then by pure chance, because uh, who knows if I would have gotten it. I think I was going to be up against like some pretty serious people. Uh, all of a sudden, GE, for some reason, needed to move up production. Um, uh, I think by six weeks. They wanted to release it six weeks earlier. And I happened to be there. I happened to be the guy who was right there who said, I, I could start right now, uh, uh, which is one of those things where like, Everyone says, oh, the way you get in to get paid gigs, is it's always some weird story that you don't know how to tell other people how to replicate. Uh, that was I just happened to be able to say I can start right now in a panicky situation when suddenly the whole thing had to happen faster. Um, mm-hmm. So that came out shortly after we did the Honeycomb trilogy, again, the remount in 2015. And uh, so by weird chance, I was able to segue almost effortlessly, almost not uh, straight into audio right around the point that me and my colleagues were realizing that we were burning out on on theater, at least on theater on the elaborate scale that we produced it at. Uh, And... um, so I wrote I wrote this show for Panoply that ended up being called The Message. Um, and uh, it was, you know, it was very much in the school of the show, of the, the fiction podcasts that were popular at that time. Indeed, it was some of the stuff they told me to listen to. They, they said, oh, if you get an idea, you should listen to The Bright Sessions. Mm-hmm. You should listen to The Black Tapes podcast. You mm-hmm. should listen to Lime Down. I mean, the complete, the total Pasco and Get $200 uh, fiction podcasts. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, so so I was like, uh, you, you know, so I was like, oh, uh, I never dreamed that one day I'd get to like actually meet those people. They were all like, they were all like mythical. It blew my mind like a couple of years later, like I'm meeting Lauren Chip and I'm meeting Paul Bay because they were like, you know, they were just sort of legends in my mind. Uh, um, so I sort of went straight into that. That was a big hit part. I mean, I, I'm very proud of the script. I think the script had something to do with it, but I'm not unaware that that. GE had an ocean of marketing money to spend on that show. They were placing ads in insane, but they had an ad on Mark Marin. I, you know, I got, uh, uh, so like they had, they had bottomless money way more than almost any fiction podcast would ever have. But whatever the case, they were happy enough with it to bring me back a year later to write another 
show for them. Both of these were branded podcasts that um, I didn't have to mention GE in them. In fact, they told me not to, but they said that I needed that some piece of tech of innovative technology that they were working on some some kind of some new one of the new groundbreaking things they were working on they needed it to be described in the story and they needed it to play a role in saving the day at the in at the climax of the story uh, uh but other than that I I was I was left very free to um to write the stories as I saw fit particularly the second one after the first one the message was successful they brought me back the next year for a show called Life after about a um a social media platform where messages uh from the deceased start popping up uh they gave me a very free hand in uh how i how i developed and wrote that story and uh as again as long as the tech i mentioned the tech in like episode two and episode six and then in episode 10 it was somehow involved in saving the day uh so i don't know if anybody would ever do branded podcasting like that ever again uh uh you know i I don't know what the current state of branded podcasting is but to my great surprise both of those shows um I I later found out that that both of those shows were optioned by big Hollywood companies for development for film or television. Neither of them was ever made. And both, I mean, no, in fact, for the message, I got a direct phone call from a big (laughs) Hollywood company and they said, can we option the message? I was like, oh God, I've been waiting for this call all my life and I have to send you to General Electric because they own it. Oh, Nobody no. screwed me. I knew that from the beginning. But but that but so I went to my I went back to my friend Sean and I said, could we do this and could we own our own stuff? And he mm-hmm. said, yeah, I've got, he, he worked in audio production before he did theater. So that's how Gideon Media was born. And that's how I started self-producing uh, uh, fiction podcasts. That's awesome. That's like what a wonderful story, both from the theater side and your segue into into audio drama and podcasting, I I had no idea, and I've known you for a couple of years now. Um, so like that's so cool, and thank you for sharing all of that. <laughs> Pleasure, yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned within that starting to sort of like shift from uh, confessional direct address play about my feelings to writing in genres like horror and sci-fi, um, and I'm curious about what specifically maybe interests you in telling stories that have that sort of speculative fiction edge to them, aside from like affinity for the genres themselves. <laughs> yeah, that's funny, isn't it? Because I, um, uh, you know. When I think back to like why I started, I mean, obviously a lot of kids think spaceships and lasers are cool. Um, I mean, Doctor Who was foundationally huge for me because um, my, I think my uh, my parents always, when we would come home from school, they'd have us watch public television. I think my my parents didn't like they didn't tell us that there were no other channels but they just didn't tell us about the other channels. <laughs> of course, we eventually found out about them to friends at school and stuff like that. Um <laughs> But we sort of just thought, okay, you turn on the TV and public TV comes on. You know, so when you come home from school, you watch Sesame Street, you watch Mr. Rogers, you watch The Electric Company or Three Two One Contact or whatever these shows are. A lot of them don't exist anymore, but um, obviously Sesame Street does. And obviously people have heard of Mr. Rogers still nowadays. Uh, but one day I stayed up after those shows to see what came on at uh, at the achingly late hour for a little kid of 5.30 p.m. And, uh, uh, and then Doctor Who came on. And I think um, and I've remained a Doctor Who fan for my entire life. 
I think that it's interesting because Doctor Who can inculcate in you an affinity for more than just science fiction. Science fiction is obviously the preeminent thing. You watch Doctor Who, you get, you get seriously into time travel and aliens and stuff like that. Um, but it's soft sci-fi to the point that it also gives you an affinity for fantasy because there is a certain level of kind of just like – tech tech indistinguishable from magic type stuff there's no it, there is not an asimov the expanse type feel to it uh um and then also very crucially doctor who does give you an affinity for horror um uh because quite uh, quite often the monsters uh the monsters would be quite scary especially if you're a little kid the old classic show very often the monsters will be quite cheap but um but they would be quite frightening to you if you were so if you had a you know a uh, a, a, a credible a, a, a credulous imagination uh the monsters would be quite frightening i think one of the showrunners of the 21st century version of the show said uh Stephen Moffat had said doctor who doesn't take place in outer space it takes place under your bed it's a show about scary monsters uh so it scares you for a few minutes and then in swoops the doctor as a fundamentally reassuring force um uh i there's a writer I know, El Sandover, who said that um, children's literature, children's entertainment, uh, uh, I'm, I'm totally paraphrasing, but it's like it's, it's the deployment of carefully uh, uh, measured out doses of trauma that you can handle as a child, uh, uh, ju just the right amount that you can handle the grant, what appears to be grandmother turning out to be a wolf. Um, uh, but then something reassuring coming in so that the first time that you actually experience frightening or traumatic stuff, it won't be the first time you've had those emotions. Um, uh, it's a preparatory thing. But I would say that, you know, in a sense, <laughs> Doctor Who sort of um, uh, inculcated me with like with a love of kind of like the boundless possibilities of fantasy, the moral dilemmas of science fiction, and then sort of like uh, the existential kind of like hopelessness forces bigger than you of horror. And I've been compelled by those things all my life. I mean, when I talk to people about, when I talk to people who hate horror and they tell me why they don't consume it in any form, the feeling that they describe not liking is the same feeling I like. It's not that I feel something different than they do when they watch horror. I feel the same thing they do, but I, or, uh, or listen to horror or something like that, but I, um, uh, I want that feeling. The opening music to the Magnus Archives scares me to the marrow of my bones. Uh, 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 but I also, for some, I, for some reason, I love the feeling. And I think in all three cases, um, you know, I think I think there's a lot to be said for the spoonful of sugar making the medicine go down. All three of those the science fiction, fantasy, horror, oh, they all have like lots of fun stuff to kind of make adult themes kind of go down more easily. Um, you know, I, I think horror because of like, if you, if you have a bunch of cool cathartic scares in it, uh, I think that's a way of, um, dealing with the fact that we, uh, we quite often feel really very helpless against sort of nebulous forces. I think, uh, you know, nowadays more than ever, I think, you know, that we sort of feel like, um, we're constantly hearing about, oncoming apocalypse in various forms and um uh and horror is sort of a a way of uh of of processing that and science fiction for me often is a way of digging into complex moral dilemmas um and definitions around the nature of what humanity is um but it goes down a lot smoother than some sort of like you know dry symposium on those subjects because you know you can have 
you know, lasers or you can <laughs> or, or or alien invasions or something like that. Um, something that's uh, that kind of adds an element of um, exhilaration and possibility to, you know, what can be sort of heady or, or intellectual type stuff. Uh, I was talking to a friend about Star Trek The Next Generation about a year ago, um, and we were sort of remembering how so many of the episodes, especially in the middle of every season, uh, you know, they would they, they sort of have the dogfights at the beginning and the end or the uh, or the Borg invasions or whatever. But a lot of the episodes in the middle were all could almost have been plays. They were almost they were they were they were nearly always like there'd be some dilemma that was mostly sorted out by conversations. Um, uh, the legendary episode where Data's creator shows up and wants to claim him back as if he's a piece of property rather than a sentient being. Not, not a single punch is thrown. Not a single phaser is fired in that episode episode it's all done by moral dilemmas nearly all of which could be staged as a play which i think is what made me start thinking that like plays could be a legitimate venue for science fiction dialogue can feel like action dialogue can feel like breaking uh, so a big part of it was like finding ways to make conversations feel have the 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 breathless feeling of exhilaration that you would get from uh like a chase on movies and TV if and the way that you do that is to steadily build the menace and tension in a conversation alongside with gradually ratcheting up the complexity of the ideas being discussed. Um, in, the discussion of intellectual ideas can actually be quite exciting uh, uh, if you keep finding new complications to throw in and you marry those ideas to a sense of gradually ratcheting up menace. Uh, audio drama in many ways is, uh, feels like a cousin art form to theater because it rewards lengthy dialogue conversations in a way that that film or TV quite often don't seem to. Um, and uh, I think maybe I had an easier segue into into audio drama, radio drama, whatever you want to call it, podcast drama, because um, of how much those forms um, uh, kind of welcome, you know, dialogue and conversation as part of their dramatic engine. You were talking a little bit about this, but I'm wondering if you can expound on it more. Um, do you think that there are stories that you can tell better in audio formats than you can in the theater or vice versa? Or like, what are things that you think about when you're writing? Like, like I think of like, Steal the Stars. I don't think that that could be just a play. Um, like, I think that would be a very complicated play to produce, but I know that there's a lot of audio plays that I listen to and it's like, yeah, this is like five people talking around a fire that could be a unit set. I see it. Like, I get it. Um, and not that everything needs a unit set, but like when you're writing for, are there things that you're like, oh, I want to do this in an audio play because I know I can, like, I know I can push in this direction. Yeah. You know, I think I, I had a bit of a rocky transition into audio because I think I was still wearing my theater cap in a lot of ways uh, with the message uh, because I was writing it with that very often with theater. My instinct was to write for a very few locations or ideally one location. I was a big fan of the unit set, partly because I was self-producing independent theater plays with my 
friends. We didn't have flies. So if you wanted a, a, a change of scenery, the lights would have to go out and a couple of your buddies would have to like drag stuff <laughs> on and off stage in darkness. And it's absolutely deadly and everyone can hear them run into each other and say, ow. So I, uh, I, I generally found that like as much as you would think a play might become static if it was on a single set, it actually could be much more exciting because you just like figure out what variations you can play with that space um, and like what sort of like um, suspense and menace you can bring to that space. So I, I, I had in my head the idea, you know, a single location is much cheaper and easier to manage. And so as a result, the message takes place almost entirely within the offices of this code breaking company that is contracted to um, decode this extraterrestrial message. And when I was first designing life after the subs the following year, uh, nearly all of it was set in FBI offices because again it was a so and and somebody I had left out of my sort of earlier uh, uh, Max Life spiel who I really shouldn't have is the audio director John Dryden uh, who is a wonderful director of radio drama in the UK his company Goldhawk makes a number of dramas for uh, uh, different outlets of the BBC uh, and he's and he's also made uh, uh, you know work for various uh, podcast companies in the US anyway they brought him over over to direct the second show that I made for Panoply called Life After. And John gave like a heavy amount of notes on my scripts that had to do with ways of making them a better fit for audio. And one thing he hit really hard was you've all of these are set in indoor offices. Every single scene is set in an indoor office. Uh, he said, he said, could you, it would be, it would make it so much better if you could, um, give me a variety of locations. Uh, I think I think the way that he put it was like giving the audience the same room tone in every single scene is like if you couldn't turn over to the other side when you're sleeping. Um, it's like it giving them the exact same feeling on their eardrums the whole way through. That uh, And so I, I, I sort of had to reverse engineer life after to kind of think of a lot of reasons because it was all told from the point of view of a single character, uh, this guy Ross, I had conceived life after to be along the lines of thrillers I love, like um, uh, No Way Out with Kevin Costner or Out of Time with Denzel Washington, where someone within a law enforcement organization needs to do illegal stuff for some reason. They've got some kind of force. And so they're having to, like, use their own access to certain stuff to pull off some illegal shit while their colleagues are getting more and more suspicious of them. I've always found those kind of stories really gripping. But John was like, no, no, he said, can you get me outside sometimes? Can you get me into apartments? Can you get me, you know, and uh, like, uh, I had, so I can't start coming up with all these reasons the character would be walking along the water or why the character would be uh, b back in his apartment, why he'd be on a New York City street with, you know, uh, horns honking, stuff like that. And um, I had to do some reverse engineering to my original outline with Life After in order to accommodate that note of John's. But what I knew after that in writing subsequent shows was, to build those multiple locations into the outline uh, before a single page of dialogue was written. And I found that actually that, that that was tremendously freeing. And I came to love the feeling of being able to just jump to a totally different place. Um, and uh, you had this feeling also, it's like, oh, I don't want to overtax the sound designer. I don't want to overtax them. I don't want to give them too much. And I come to figure out now, sound designers don't want their fingers to be worked to the bone, obviously. But sound designers do kind of want to do a bunch of stuff. 
They want to have a good time. They want to design a bunch of environments. They want to, you know, they, they want to have some fun. They want to, you know, um, and uh, uh, they, they, you know, they, they'd, ra- they'd rather not. They're the ones who have to listen to every single scene five billion times. You know, they'd rather not have everything in the. So I started, you know, uh, uh, really stretching my legs. And they, oh, I can suddenly have these people on an airplane. I, I can suddenly have these people overlooking a cliff. I can suddenly have them, you know, parasailing. I haven't done a parasailing yet but i could because uh uh uh, uh because you could do it in audio and you could, my god you could do it in audio so much easier than you can do it on film and television mm-hmm. um and uh, uh so i i have definitely grown to love the, the 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 great freedom of being to jump around in locations and i've grown to love the ability to um achieve more complex effects with sound design to the point where i've become much less sheepish of putting demands on a sound designer at Gideon Media. We've, we have a regular, we've been working with a very talented guy named Bart Fassbender. Uh, and I do ask him, I mean, as a courtesy, I do see sound designers on Twitter sometimes talking about how uh, other creatives sometimes push them too hard or overstretch them. And I try to be mindful of that. Uh, so, you know, I do, I do send Bart early drafts and I say, you know, please tell me if I'm asking for the impossible here. Uh, and he hasn't said that sometimes you'll say, you know, if you do this or this, I think I could get a better effect here or whatever and i'm always my it's so much easier to just tweak a couple of things on the page than it is to massively revise a sound effect uh so I, yeah i i have i i do definitely revel in that sort of thing and by the time of, of writing give me away the most recent audio drama that my company released of asking for some really complex sound effects involving a virtual a virtual cyber prison where the voices of a number of extraterrestrial political prisoners uh, are being held captive. Like I, I started writing some asking for some really complex things to be realized with that, uh, that, you know, that Bart, you know, came through with. Um, so now at this point um, uh, with new audio scripts, I am always thinking about, What's the unique uh, soundscape thing that we could potentially achieve with this? What's what's some what's something we could give people that they haven't heard before? You know, uh, a, a way to use this this form of storytelling and its unique advantages uh, in that in that way. Yes. Yeah, th- this is also making me think of specifically tying this to the the genre interests you mentioned earlier. It's also so much. Because because audio drama lives so much in the audience's imagination, it's also like, oh yes, we can have a a, a monster or whatever appear in an audio drama in some ways much more easily than in theater or film. Because if uh, I I know slightly Gabriel Urbina who is one of the creators of Wolf 359. I remember him saying one time, he comes from a film background, and he said, oh, I needed a plant monster, and in audio drama, all you need for that is some leaves and branches and like a, <laughs> and like a room in which to make some foley sound effects and then you get the actors to scream and like that's a plant monster <laughs> so yeah. yeah it opens up a lot of um a lot of space to play well and it's also so much more frightening like i think so much of horror movies is like not showing the thing mm. because it's right. always so much worse in your mind and like in audio dramas you just get to live there like it's both yeah. cheaper and easier and also like more affect because no one's like oh that's not what i thought swamp thing would look like <laughs> or whatever 
One of the key things I discovered in the process of like figuring out how to write from audio is sort of like a jarring transition from theater in some ways. You know, a lot. Obviously, there's obvious differences between the forms, but um, you know, uh, but part of it was just a mindset switch. And in terms of what what, what you both are citing, um, a huge sort of unlocking for me was realizing that one of the core things you're doing with audio drama is you're partnering with the audience's imagination. You don't want to over-describe and you don't want to under-describe. What you want to do is give them just enough to autofill. You get you give them just enough that like the uh, between a combination of like what the characters are describing and what the sound effects are suggesting to let them think of the most awful plant monster inside their minds. You just want to give them a little push. You want to give them a little start and then their minds will fill in a way scarier plant monster than you could ever visually render. And that's always one of the key calibrations page by page with an audio script for me is like, if I hit the sweet spot of uh, of description, um, like to the point where like, you know, uh, um, enough to where the listener can take it and run with it, uh, but not so much that people feel bogged down. Uh, that's the, the thing we always joke about is like, you know, if a character, if, if, a, if there's only two characters in a scene and one of them pulls a gun on the other, how do you make the listener know that a gun has been mm. pulled? Because nobody ever says, you just pulled a gun on me. <laughs> uh, and I've been joking with other audio creators for years about various lines of dialogue that, uh, you know, uh, uh, oh, a Colt 45, how gauche or something <laughs> like that. You have to say, you have to come up with something to let the audience know what's happening. Uh, uh, but just in enough so they can picture but not so much that the characters start sounding ridiculous yeah yeah it's like the audio version of the one-sided telephone call in in theater (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah exactly because yeah we've all seen hack plays (laughs) what do you mean they never received the paperwork for my loan (laughs) yeah exactly you don't want to you you want to figure out how to make sure they know the paperwork for the loan wasn't received without the character having to say that in audio you're doing it constantly (laughs) at the beginning of every scene in audio every single scene you're trying to figure out how to situate the audience without the character saying some like incredibly stultifying pedantic thing about, well, now that we're in this meadow, (laughs) you know, uh, uh, like at the beginning of every scene, I feel that inward groan starting of going, okay, okay. What's a slick non eye rolly way of establishing where we are. Mm -hmm. I'm curious. We're, we're recording this in March, 2022. And over the last few years, we've seen so many, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, we've seen so many theater artists transitioning into audio in some cases. I've heard so many more audio versions of like plays originally written for theater than I ever expected to <laughs> two years ago. Um, and film and, and other like uh, digital media live streaming as well. And I'm curious, do you feel like the landscape of audio dramas has changed in the last couple of years as a result of the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, well, obviously, I mean, this the pandemic in a lot of cases seems like it accelerated trends that were kind of already happening. Um, uh, you know, like the, the you know, people I like talk about, the people seem more and more inclined to stay home rather than go out. People are more and more, you know, um, 
getting their entertainment via their screens, their interactions virtually. Uh, and I definitely, you know, the, the fiction podcast world was already starting to explode before, you know, the pandemic came along. The funny thing with the pandemic was it like it left audio as one of the few things you could produce for a while, but it sort of like kneecapped it in the sense that like um, it cut massively down on listenership. Um, that, uh, uh, that we lost, we lost our number one venue, which is people who are commuting. Uh, Um, and, uh, 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 so there was like more output than ever, but like more supply, uh, but less demand, which was, uh, you know, sort of a, a discouraging situation, but, but definitely the biggest thing I noticed is just the explosion of the, the, uh, 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 of, of stuff being made. Uh, which overall is a good thing, but I definitely, for me and my colleagues, um, it's it's definitely caused struggles for us when we launched our audio slate last year with Gideon Media working for the first time by ourselves. Uh, there was no deep-pocketed partner. There was no GE. There was no Tor McMillan that we co-produced Steal the Stars with. Um, we were out on our own marketing our shows with our own resources. And I think we thought that would be easier. I think we could say, oh, it's the writer of The Message in Life After. It's the company that produced Steal the Stars. Like, you know, we... Well, we've got a name in this in this business. We could go out and uh, and people will remember us and they'll come back. And boy, like that was not the case. Uh, I mean, some people did. We definitely had, you know, a, a core group of listeners who, you know, follow along, have followed along with our stuff and are interested to hear what we're doing next. But but we weren't pulling the audi- audiences of the of that same size of the the size of uh, of Steel the Stars that the, the millions of downloads that Steel the Stars got or that Life After got or that the message got uh partly because we didn't have the marketing reach of the co-producers that we had on those shows but partly also why did we think people remembered us memories are short and the audio drama world is just exploding there's constantly new shows um the fact that we you know we took a couple years to produce our new slate we kind of vanished from people's radars like uh uh you know if we'd put a show maybe the next year after steel of stars you know maybe things would have gone differently but we spent a couple of years like making stuff for private clients and um raising money to make our shows um and not getting back out there fast, that that really turned out to be a mistake because like uh, we didn't have to start from scratch, but we definitely had to start way. We definitely had to get in line. Well, sure. there was no, I think we thought that there was going to be some velvet rope that we were going to be allowed to just cut straight up to because we'd made mm-hmm. popular shows in the past. But the vast number of new shows, um, people fell in love with new stuff. People that, you know, uh, uh, quite understandably, you know, people fell in love with uh, with with the, with the, you know, the shows that were putting out stuff regularly. I know it's been said over and over again, nothing beats regular output nothing beats uh, not losing touch with your audience uh you know it was it was a, it was a hard lesson to learn and one we're definitely going to bear in mind going forward but i it it's however tough of a pill to swallow it was for us personally it's unquestionably a good thing for the form when huge numbers of shows are being made obviously not all of the shows are going to be good but what it does mean is lots of stuff is being tried um i do love that the that the Amer- the, the american 
audio drama form has almost completely moved on from the faux investigation format for a long time. I mean, I don't have anything against it. What I just didn't like was that being everything. I didn't like that being like, it'd be like if every single show on TV was The Office or Parks and Rec with, an, uh, with a camera crew that was uh, assumed to be there. Nobody would put up with that. But there was this weird stretch where like that, um, like if you were uh, if a big company, if you were pitching an audio fiction thing to them, they'd be like, okay, so uh, how, what's the found footage aspect to it? You're like, found footage? I'm just going to be an audio drama. It's just going to be... Mm-hmm. Um, um, which in the UK, people would understand very easily because that that art form never went away. But people have definitely seemed to have like um, have moved way past that. The found footage thing still exists, but it's it's a subgenre as it as it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be everything. Um, and you know, there's lots of like just wonderfully interesting stuff being made. The downside, of course, is that. Um, as any form gets more popular, there's always going to be a certain extent of star driven stuff suddenly starts taking all the top spots. And that's definitely a factor that we've seen. Um, I don't, I'm not opposed to star driven audio dramas in any way. Uh, I just, um, I've just found it a bit discouraging that there hasn't always been the level. Some of them are excellent, but there hasn't been the level of quality control that you would necessarily expect um, uh, uh, from some of those, um, uh, you know, which, which can be, a discouraging thing um, because uh, very often an audio drama with a big name star in it is going to be the first, the first one a, a newbie is going to try. The first one that someone is brand new to the field. And the problem is that audio drama isn't popular enough in the United States for people to think, oh, if I don't like this one, I'll just try another one. No one thinks if they watch a bad movie or a bad TV show, oh, I'm giving up on film. I'm giving up on TV. I'll never watch another one. But we're still in that precarious stage in, with audio drama where if someone hears one and it stinks, they go like, oh, oh, so this is just this crappy little art form. This this is bad. All these are bad. Um, so there's, I definitely have this feeling. Like I so want everybody to hear a good one because, like, w- when I started with podcast, I mean, I'd heard I heard audio dramas before before podcast. I heard Doctor Who, Big Finish dramas, and I grew up. My parents let us listen to The Shadow and Inner Sanctum, classic, you know, Golden Age stuff when I was a kid. But my intro to podcast drama was Bright Sessions, Black Tapes, and Limetown, and I was enthralled and thrilled by those shows and. It made me want to hear tons more stuff. And I want people who are just discovering the form to, to be hearing something, some equivalent of Black Tapes, Bright Sessions, Limetown, something that that makes them fall in love with it, uh, So, which is the only reason why I, I sometimes wish that the 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 quality floor was a little higher with star driven podcasts, but that's because that's become a big new part of the landscape is that famous people uh, 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 want to do them. I think you know partly I think a lot of stuff was recorded during the pandemic and people thought maybe that was the only way they'd be able to act. Um, but I think in a lot of cases famous people just want to do them now because you know the form is exhilarating and also you can look like crap and not learn your lines, which must be like such a relief <laughs> if you've been doing on camera acting for a long time. Um, uh, the the other danger to watch out with that, though, is that a lot of times people think, oh, I can't get anyone to buy my film idea or my TV show idea. I'll convert that into audio and make it as an audio. It's not that that never works. It's just that that's a really bad idea for that's a bad method of coming up with an audio drama idea. It, it helps a lot if you come up with an idea that was meant for audio. Uh, and um, uh, you, it's audio. Audio dramas aren't aren't films with the pictures taken away. Uh, the, the storytelling is very much 
thought of for audio. Um, and I'd love the form to have its own unique dignity along those lines. Awesome. Um, I'm just jumping back to your found footage thought and my boyfriend who does not listen to our podcast is still certain it is serial, but <laughs> for tabletop games in some way and only eight episodes long. Um, so I hear you and there are many people who feel that way. Well, now I think that's what we should be. We can we can solve tabletop game crime, Todd. We're missing a, a huge marketing opportunity. That's any that's way an you could make this any way you could somehow turn this into true crime. I wish I knew a way to to, to, to turn okay. my stuff into true crime. GM crimes will get found <laughs> audio from people's streams. It'll be great. I will do anyway, a crime. Um, back to you, Mac. <laughs> I I really really loved Give Me Away. I listened to oh, thank it you very um, much. this winter, um, and it was really delightful. And I just wanted to know and like talk to you about what inspired this story of ghost houses and alien contact and radical hospitality, which was a phrase I saw someone employ for the piece, which I. I don't think I would have used myself, but I was like, oh, yeah, that is what it's about. It's funny. I um, we, we had a bunch of ideas. Uh, you know, we, me and my colleagues, Gideon Media, we keep, a, a um, you know, a running document of pitches and ideas that we have and give me away. It kind of been hanging around for a while. I'd sometimes used it in the past as like I, I had it was originally an idea for a play, which was going to just be. Um, the night that the main character, Graham, that the night before he is about to have a second area extraterrestrial consciousness put inside his mind. And it's, 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 and he's spending his last night just as a solo human being, um, uh, uh, in this, in this hotel room with his wife and their best friend and phone calls coming in from his kids. And, um, the drama was going to be about waiting for dawn when he was going to go do this. Uh, and then at a certain point they realize they revealed that they've come there to talk him out of it. And it builds to like a crisis point. Um, episode four of the nine part first season of give me away, uh, has several strong traces of that play in it. Um, uh, I, I did keep the idea, uh, uh, of his wife and their mutual best friend coming to visit him, uh, in the Nevada desert location of much of the story. Uh, but but beyond that, I heavily reconceptualized it when it became an audio drama. I heavily reworked it into being a multi-location story. Um, and uh, and and particularly with the eight I, with it with an ear toward what can make this a unique audio phenomenon, which is when I settled on the idea of um, the screaming spaceship. Uh, I wanted there to be some version of some audio way of telling the story of the main character Graham Shapiro's emerging conscience. Uh, um, I wanted the screams that emitted from this kind of nondescript spaceship that landed in the Nevada desert to change their meaning for him throughout the course of the first episode. Uh, I, uh, the first episode basically follows this guy, Graham Shapiro. He's adrift in life. Uh, um, uh, he and his wife Morgan have just gotten divorced. Both of his children are grown. Um, he All of these sort of institutions of his life, he can tell he's kind of winding down at work. They're not going to fire him, but they kind of need him less. And so all of the structures that he's in invested in his life are kind of like fading into the background and he kind of doesn't know what he's for anymore. And he just tries all the stuff that like a divorced guy tries, you know, book club, casual dating, various stuff. Um, 
But at the same time, the spaceship has landed and it's being investigated by the government and scientists. And you keep hearing, you know, news reports about what's going on with it. And and you hear the screams, the screams that are emanating from the spaceship. And I wanted it to be a situation where the first time he hears the screams, it's like, oh, my God, gross. That's alien spaceship has screams coming out of it and then gradually for that to morph into a morbid fascination man those screams are scary i wonder what's going on there to gradually go to a point where graham was like those screams are people and they're screaming for help and i can't just stand by and listen to it i have to go be a part of it and that all had to do with we really wanted to produce a multi-season audio drama everything that Gideon Media had done before and that I had done before had all been conceived as a mini-series uh, uh, The Message in Life after a definitive mini-series they both had uh, strong hard conclusions with Seal the Stars I assumed it would only be one season I left the plot open for there to be a second season, but I made sure that it had a complete character arc where if we didn't get to ever make any more, I would be completely happy with where it ended. I mean, like within that universe, things are still happening, but the main character, Dakota Prentice, she has come to the end of a, of a complex emotional arc. If nothing else happens with Steel the Stars, and I don't know if it ever will, I'm happy with where it landed. With Give Me Away, we took sort of the bigger risk of saying, let's make this season one. You never know with independent audio drama if you're ever going to get to make a season two. Uh, but we took the risk of ending the season on a point where we'll actually be pretty bummed if there's not any more of the story. My whole life has been plays or miniseries, definitive endpoints. And so in order for me to think about what a story without a definitive endpoint would look like, I needed to think of the kind of story that that seemed like it could could grow and expand rather than sort of like pushing towards like a definitive point of collision which is how i've always de designed stories so i was like uh what okay l l what if this this new way of of interacting with something strange they discovered the only way that they can get the imprisoned alien the screaming imprisoned alien consciousnesses on that ship out is to download them one at a time into a human body which we, they would then share with that human for the rest of the human being's life was like oh there's all kinds of ways that story can expand uh you know uh, number one the government's only letting in a few volunteers at a time and those volunteers have to be heavily screened uh um, so, you know, that, uh, you know, the, the, there's a lot of ways that that allows the story to expand. It's right now, there's not nearly enough human volunteers to get all the people off the, off the prison mainframe. So that allows in future seasons, new characters to come in, uh, uh, new human characters to show up as volunteers, new alien characters to come out of the cyber prison and into people's minds. So the story can expand naturally that way. It can also expand, uh, location wise as the government gradually relaxes the restrictions uh i had i always thought season one everyone has to stay in the nevada location season two they could get furloughs out to visit their loved ones season three they start letting people like actually like go and and this whole dual uh hybrid mind people start melding in with american society and how does that change american society and this main character graham shapiro my i, I always thought he would be one of those leads who was like um, uh, uh, McNulty on the wire or the, the the main woman Piper on Orange is the New Black or one of those one of those main characters who's like an audience's way in and then 
and then you quickly turn it into an ensemble show where they're just one of the ensemble. Uh, uh, so in future seasons, I I, I don't I, I see Graham as being central and crucial to the show, but I hope if we get to make more of it, that it will spiral out into being more of an ensemble show where we keep meeting new human volunteers and we keep meeting new extraterrestrials coming out of the prison. Awesome. I will also be very bummed if we don't get to find out what happens next. (laughs) I'm very hopeful. It's one of those things you you all know how in, in indie audio drama. It's such it's such an. I mean, everyone's like, when are y'all? When's the next? You know, I see this happen on Reddit with other shows. People are like, when's your next season coming out? People and audio creators have to be like, guys, folks, we're not TV. Like we don't we don't have we don't definitely have the budget for season two yet. When uh, we might maybe we never will. Uh, or 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 and also we don't have like a huge multivalent production staff. You know that uh, um, we can only make uh, uh, so if we're working on some other audio, we have to finish that before we can make season two or season three or whatever. It's just not the indie audio drama is just not the same world as uh, when's the next season of Stranger Things or something like that. Um, I, I sort of see that dynamic playing out all the time. Give me the ways the first time I'm experiencing it as a creator, which is like uh, there's all these factors delaying. Give me away season two. We're trying to make a few other original shows right now. We just don't have the bandwidth right now to make multiple audio dramas. We would definitely love it if Gideon Media expanded to the point where we were like a bigger shop and we were making multiple shows at the same time. Um, but we're not there yet. We, we don't have the, the the revenue coming in yet to make that possible. Um, and so we really can just do one thing at a time. And if we have a client job, if we have a private client job, corporate client job, or we're just working on a different show, we can't make, you know, the, 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 the next thing happen. People have asked us about a second season of Steal the Stars for a while. And a lot of the creative people involved in the first season would like to do it. But there's all these factors that keep pushing it back if it'll ever happen. And it makes me feel bad because I know how much I want to see the next season of things that, you know, um, uh, or hear the next season of stuff that I like. Um, But I've come to with audio drama. I've trained myself to just be like, who knows when it'll get here? Uh, uh, This this is a little bit of a a theater circle, theater connection circling background. But one of the other things that you all at Gideon Media have done that I found really interesting is last summer you produced audio adaptations of two Wallace Shawn plays. Um, you specifically uh, Grasses of a Thousand Colors and The Designated Mourner, which are two phenomenal plays. And I was just curious what led to that. Uh, I, I guess what led to that collaboration and also what uh, was involved in that shift from kind of play, play plays that are quite established and have uh, you know, been around and had their own reputation as great theatrical works for a while. What led you all to want to put those into audio? I mean, it was a, an astonishing coincidence. Um, I have venerated Wallace Shawn's plays since uh, late co- when I first discovered them in late college, late undergrad. Um, I, I found the designated mourner, I think, in the in the grad school library, um, and immediately fell in love with it. Started backfilling, like finding it his earlier plays. Um, uh, it was real. I mean, it, and you know, I had the usual kind of like disorienting realization that the incredibly adorable actor. 
um, um, from, you know, from Princess Bride and Clueless wrote these incredibly harsh, uh, bleak, uh, 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 sexually explicit plays um, that I thought captured so much of um, a sense of the of the modern subconscious and that they were really quite um, some of them are really quite prescient in certain ways. Uh, and um you know, so I'd loved them for years. My friends, it was a joke. My friends are all, my friends are like, oh, Mac, Mac's big heroes, Wallace Shawn. You know, I go to see his plays when they came out. I mean, Sean Williams, my co-producer, Gideon Media, you know, he, he came to love a lot of the plays as well. Um, it, and by pure coincidence, we, uh, Gideon Media and me as a writer personally are repped at the agency CAA and Wally is repped there as an actor. Uh, when he decided he wanted to make podcasts out of the designated Mourner and Grasses of a Thousand Colors, he wasn't sure how to go about it. He just simply contacted his acting reps at CAA and said, can you all help me with this? They routed him to the podcast people at CAA, um, who uh, our agent there, Josh Lindgren, reached out to us and said, are you all familiar? You probably know him from The Princess Bride, but are you familiar that he also writes scripts? And we're like, yeah, we know that he writes <laughs> scripts. Um, <laughs> Uh, we were we were flipping out um and i think that was a big part of the reason that he ended up deciding to work with us um despite the fact that he almost certainly could have gotten those shows produced with a much larger company as i think that he felt safe with us because right off the bat we told him we already loved the material we wouldn't change anything about the material um and uh, uh you know that we were going to sort of present especially a play with like grasses of a thousand colors that is a that that's a hard swallow i guess for a lot of people like to present a play like that to sort of i can imagine a lot of other places would be like oh god could you at least take out the scene with this or that or whatever um and um we were just like no we we 100 believe in this um the only creative participation i had in those scripts was um while he did let me uh participate a little bit in picking out where the cliffhangers fell that didn't involve changing a word and i wouldn't change a word it's, it's the holy bible to me but um but was but it was one of those things where it's like, um, oh, if you end it, like if you end part three here, that's a bit of an ominous feeling because these plays weren't written in any with any kind of um, Wally does not um, have pulpy instincts the way I do. Um, I, I'm, my storytelling is really driven by a hard pulp sensibility. I really want to get the audience go, ha ha, bam. You, you can, I bet you want to hear the next episode now, right? Wally does not think that way. He, he like, uh, with his playwriting, he really just likes to tap into the subconscious, tap into his, you know, pol political concerns and, and basically just follow his muse. He doesn't care about cliffhangers, but if you look closely at his scripts, particularly the designated border, there are cliffhangers there. Um, uh, so I was able to at least be part of the conversation with that, which was, you know, a great honor. Uh, but it was very, it was a remarkable experience to be recording those in the summer of 2020. Uh, we had to do it all over Zoom, of course, because the, the pandemic was in full swing. You know, basically every actor in both plays is over 70. Nobody was going to be going to a studio. And um, we had to do the whole thing over Zoom. And uh, it was wild to be recording the designated mourner while there was while there was a, a play about great political upheaval in a in a in a society while there was great political upheaval on the streets of America and to be recording a play like Grasses of a Thousand Colors where the entire world is crippled by an illness while obviously you know being at the height of the pandemic there was this this amazing feeling of the fact that Wally almost seems 
tapped like 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 there's something in his subconscious that's just tapped right into America's id or the modern world's id or whatever. There's these like he just the the prescience of the plays is just was just really remarkable. And it, I mean, it just felt like re- really raw, like just peeling a scab while we were uh, uh, recording those uh, those shows. Um, and, uh, you know, um, it was the, the, it, it, it was wild because everybody we did like I said we did the whole thing over Zoom we had to mail good quality microphones to some of the actors who didn't have them um, uh, uh, and um, everybody was sort of learning how to do Zoom as we went along I remember our first meeting with Andre Gregory the legendary director of these plays who was the legendary co-star of My Dinner with Andre with Wally the first time we had a Zoom meeting Sean and I got there about to the Zoom meeting about 25 minutes before the sound designer that they'd been working with for many years before he joined the call. Andre Gregory had his laptop set up in such a way (laughs) that you could only see his forehead. (laughs) And he didn't, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't seem to understand that like what he saw on his screen is what we would see on our screens. So co-producer Sean and I were making pleasant conversation with his forehead because neither one of us dared dared to tell Andre Gregory uh, that he should adjust his screen. The sound designer came and said, Andre, we can't see you. <laughs> Andre, we're looking at your hairline. Move the laptop until you can see your own face. Because he could do it. He'd been working with him for 25 years. Sure. Mm-hmm. Sean and I didn't dare tell him, uh, <laughs> uh, you know. But it's, and because these people were these people were titans to us. So it was an extraordinary experience to you know, to get to work with them. We were very afraid that we wouldn't be able to give those shows the release that they deserved because of our very meager resources. But um, a big part of it is that we've just, for many years, we've had a wonderful publicist. Emily Owens has been our publicist going all the way back to our theater days. And she was able to get the theater press very excited about these shows and, um, uh, and, the, and the possibility of them reaching a wider audience. And particularly, we got rave reviews in the New York Times the New Yorker, and I think particularly gratifying to Wally with both of those reviews and some other reviews was the reconsideration of Grasses of a Thousand Colors, a play which was to some extent dismissed on its original run um, uh, uh, because I think a lot of the kind of like nightmarishly pornographic nature of a lot of it, um, I think a lot of people didn't understand what on earth he was doing with it. Um, And I think, uh, I think, a lot of the play has become much easier to understand um, uh, in an era of, you know, sort of like um, kind of miserable isolation and, um, uh, uh, you know, sexuality sometimes being kind of refunneled into kind of this like cyber, this kind of like, you know, uh, a technological remove. And then, of course, the disease, the illness that pervades the whole society. I think there was a much greater feeling that he was on to something with Grasses of a Thousand Colors and that it wasn't just simply like a series of like sexual fantasies or something like that, but that it was actually a play that was tapping into some subconscious dreamlike mirrors of some real currents in society. But it's one of those places, it's really, when it came out, I honestly was like, oh my God, everybody I know is going to just have nothing to do with me anymore once they get to listen to this. <laughs> I was like, I, it's like, it, it's, it's one of those shows it's very hard to like, it's very hard to explain why you think it's good. <laughs> with Designated Mourner, you can say, well, it's got this real major relevance you know, to the idea of like of the rise of fascism in a democratic society. We were literally on the phone with Wally discussing marketing strategies for the designated mourner 
on January 6, 2021, as my phone started lighting up with notifications about the insurrection, um, it was one of the most eerie things in my life. It was, you know, uh, it really felt like the designated mourner coming to life because it had the same feeling as in the play of you're focused on your own personal stuff. But then off at the periphery, increasingly unnerving stuff is moving closer and closer to the center. Um, uh so it's a lot easier to sell people on why you should put up with the unpleasantness of the designated mourner. Grasses of a Thousand Colors is a much harder sell, but the fact that a lot of prominent critics reconsidered their earlier opinions of it, I think meant a great deal to Wally. Those reviews got us a lot of downloads, and um, those ended up being the most successful shows in our original, run, our first run of Gideon Media Projects. Our sort of uh, last uh, question, to the extent that you can share what is next for for Mac Rogers and for Gideon Media. Um, well, God, it's, I, I, to, to the extent you, I can share a thing, it's definitely right. Uh, there, there's, a, there's a big project that I was just, that I, that I didn't produce, but I was one of two co-writers on that I'm hoping they're going to announce very soon because they finally done all the stuff that they were going to do before announcing it. But it's, um, it's a big horror project being produced by a very prominent company, but I can't say what it is. Uh, um, my guess is that they'll sort of target a kind of like October-ish release for it. It's an audio, an, an audio drama, uh, um, you know, uh, produced a horror show that's produced by some prominent horror people. Uh, that's definitely the, the highest profile job I've had yet. And I'm excited to hear, but I wasn't a producer on it. So I haven't, um, uh, I haven't been involved in the actual production, but I'm excited to, 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 uh, uh, hear how it came out. Um, uh, with Gideon Media, um, we we recently uh, migrated all of our material to the Fable and Folly Network, which um, which has been doing some really wonderful work building the audiences of uh, audio drama companies that are a similar size to Gideon Media. So we're uh, basically looking to kind of grow um, our. Um, give me away and our smaller shows uh, with them. We're recording another theater adaptation of a, of a, of a stage play that Sean wrote um, called Almalem. That's sort of like a, <laughs> it's sort of like what he calls it. It's like, it's a backstager set during the, um, uh, the, 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 the life of, 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 of Jesus of Nazareth, where it's basically there's, it's about this guy who sort of knows how to like, um, he sort of knows how to publicize people uh, in the New <laughs> Testament era. And he, he's really heavily involved in trying to sell to the public the idea that John the Baptist is the Messiah uh, <laughs> uh, as a way, as sort of a political angle for getting Rome out of uh, Jerusalem. And, and, and then this guy, Jesus shows up and sort of like throws his plans for a loop. Uh, and um, it's a lovely play. Um, and uh, uh, it, it is adapted very comfortably to audio. Um, and uh, um, so, so we'll be releasing that later in the year. Um, we're doing a lot of work for corporate clients um, uh, that, that well, it's also NDA'd that I'm hoping we can announce once it goes out there. Um, uh, and then beyond that, um, uh, I, hope, I, I have a new script that I'm working on with an eye toward self-production, uh, we might do that first, or we might consider doing the second season of Give Me Away first. I'm just not sure. Uh, it'll basically, you know, be what, um, 
my new script is much more horror inflected, which is something I've been wanting to do for a while. I've been listening to so much audio drama horror, but I've almost exclusively been writing science fiction. Uh, I've been, I've been really, really eager to kind of shift more into the horror direction. Um, and, uh, I did, but the opportunity, the exact opportunity hadn't come up yet. So, um, um, it, I, a lot of it'll just depend on like, you know, which actors we have access to, which resources we have access to, and then we'll start start going into it but we definitely plan to have a steady stream of original content coming out it was a brutal lesson to learn that going away for three years would make everyone forget it should be obvious but for some reason we had to learn that lesson we are never going to go away for three years again uh um and we're going to do everything we can to have regular uh content coming out uh, me both me as a writer producer and then me as a writer for hire for other projects um uh the, the whole nda thing is so preposterous nothing would change if i could n- nobody these these aren't like these aren't major hollywood studio productions you know nothing would change if i talked about them but i just can't yet uh, it always makes me feel it always makes me feel like i'm trying to be self important Ooh, if only you knew. And I would really rather just say, like, these aren't mm-hmm. national security secrets, but whatever. <laughs> That's what uh, you'd like us to think. Uh, hopefully they, they will be announced soon. Yeah. Excellent. Um, thank you so, so much for joining us for this conversation, Pleasure. Mac. This has been, like, so lovely just to listen to oh, and to, to ask you these questions. I'm grateful to you all for having me. Oh, gosh. Anytime. Um People can tune in next week to listen to some more of our Lancer campaign. Um, but Mac, before you go, um, where can people find you on social media and or is there anything else that you'd like to plug? Uh the best place to, uh, I've sort of let all of my other social media fall fallow except for my Twitter, which is at MacWrites, M-A-C-W-R-I-T-E-S, because some dude who posts once a year has at MacRogers drives me nuts. <laughs> I, I, can't, uh, I really wish I could have it because uh, I, so I could just have my name. Uh, uh, but yeah, honestly, if you look at his thing, he basically just puts Happy New Year. And then the next year he does that again. Um, but uh, uh so at Mac writes is, uh, is you can, uh, is the best place to find me on social media. And the best place to find my creative work is Gideon dash media.com, uh, uh, is the best place to find my creative work. When I make a new show, we'll always be putting it up there. And it's where you can listen to, uh, it's where you can find direct links for nearly all of my work. Excellent. Awesome. Um, thanks so much. Dungeons and Drama Nerds is produced by Todd Brian Backus, Percival Hornack, and Nicholas Orvis, and is mixed and edited by Anthony Sertaldine. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at DNDramaNerds. Check out our cast bios on our website, DungeonsAndDramaNerds.com. Leave us a rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts, and tune in next week for another episode of Dungeons and Drama Nerds.